0: Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. We've got two great guests today in Washington, D.C. One, I've got to say, uh, former Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack, uh, this is such an honor to have you on the show. Um, I don't want to sound too much like a (laughs) fanboy, but uh, we got to work together a little bit over the eight years that you were secretary, and I don't, I don't think I've been in and around politics for a long time. I don't think there's anybody that I've worked with in government who uh, authentically and passionately cared about kids and their futures as much as you did, and the way you were able to use your time as Secretary of Agriculture to make a difference in their lives was really profound. And so it's really an honor to have you here.
1: Oh, it's great to be with you, Billy. I tell you, I've got uh, the admiration is mutual uh, for the work you and the Share Our Strength folks are doing. Uh, you want to talk about caring for kids? you certainly do that and make sure that they're, they're well-fed. And, and the, uh, the work that you all did with us on breakfast expansion, very, very important for kids.
0: Good, well, we'll get into that. And we've also got uh, Kyle Bailey, who is a chef and a restaurateur, <laughs> who's gonna be our neighbor at Share Strength because he's uh, opening up a new restaurant at 15th and L in the building that uh, Fannie Mae uh, built. But uh, Kyle was at Birch and Barley where I'm having dinner tonight with my niece my sister's daughter, and at Church Key and part of the neighborhood restaurant group. We had Michael Babbin on this show uh, a little while ago. Um, and your new restaurant, uh, Kyle, is going to be called, is it Dauphine's? Am I that's saying right. that Dauphine's. right? That's right, Dauphine's. and that's going to be at uh, 15th and L, kind of a New Orleans concept? Yeah, yeah. Good. And and I know you're also uh, very involved. We were just chatting a moment in a, a organization called Dock to Dish, um, and you've been a leader in the community on sustainability issues, particularly as it applies to our fisheries.
2: Yep, we actually started that program.
0: Good. Well, thanks for being with us.
1: Great. Um, hey, I, I hope we get a, a recipe or two from this guy before he, before he leaves. You got
2: it, man. Anything you want.
0: Yeah. Or, or, <laughs> or maybe it. when you open up, you invite us back and we have another <laughs> conversation. Even better. That, that would be even better. <laughs> um, so, uh, Secretary Vilsack, uh, you know, one of the things that one of the first things I heard you talk about, and I'd love our listeners to hear it, is um, I remember when we first met. It was shortly after you'd been sworn in as secretary, and you were kind enough to come speak at a Share Our Strength event. Um, and you talked about what you, what you called, I don't know if it was really the, the case, but you called it your, your job interview with President-elect Obama, and one of the things that he had asked you to focus on as secretary, I don't know if you remember this conversation, but it really left an impression on me, and uh, maybe you can share that.
1: Well, look, uh, I, I had not met uh, the president-elect prior to that visit, and so I was obviously very nervous, uh, but he walked in, and he wanted really to talk about how we could better uh, provide nourishment and, and better protect uh, our children uh, and an opportunity to make sure that we looked at trying to end childhood hunger uh, in, in his administration. And while we made great strides in that, in that, uh, in that effort, we didn't quite, uh, didn't quite get the job done. Uh, hopefully over time uh, with the work of Share Our Strength and other organizations, uh, we will get to a point where every child in America is not only fed but fed well. Uh, and I think what we learned during the eight years I was secretary was that we have challenges on both. It's not just a lot of uh, food-insecure families. It's also families that don't necessarily get the most nutritious options uh, for their children, and we're we're grappling with a, an obesity issue here in the country, and we tried to deal with that uh, because that has long-term consequences for the kids and long-term consequences for the country. And it was something that I, I personally uh, understood because as I grew up uh, you know, in, in Pittsburgh, our, our hometown, your hometown and my hometown, um, weight and overweight and the challenges of, of dealing with that were something I had to deal with as a kid. Um, and so we really, really focused on that. And the other issue that he was quite interested in was making sure that we, we did something about rural America, uh, that we, that we spent time focusing on, um, uh, on how to improve the lives of people that live, work, and raise their families in these small towns. Uh, because it's an extraordinarily important place in America and sometimes an overlooked place.
0: Well, um, one of the things that we always talk about on this show, and Kyle, I'm going to ask you this in a moment. People are always curious how our listeners are always curious, uh, and particularly foodies, how people got to be doing what they're, they're doing. Um, in your case, uh, Tom, because you and I are both from Pittsburgh, and I think you went to school at St. Philomena's, which was about maybe 150 yards from my house, um, I remember asking, you, how does you know, how does a Pittsburgh guy get to be Secretary of Agriculture? Um, I think you said, I married the boss's daughter. Well,
1: that's right. <laughs> that, that was part of it. Look, I, I used to say that, uh, that if my parents, uh, unfortunately, they weren't alive when I got to be either governor of Iowa or, or Secretary of Agriculture, had they been alive and they had learned that their, their son was going to be the Secretary of Agriculture, they would have assumed that the country had gone to hell, uh, to be <laughs> very candid. Um Look, here's what happened. I, I mean, I married an, a, a young lady from Iowa. We moved out to a, her small town. And were it not for being involved in a community activity to try to raise uh, resources to, for better and improved athletic facilities for kids in the community, uh, something that people thought was impossible to do, I led that effort. Uh, and and were it not for the the murder of a mayor? Um, uh, in December of 1986, the mayor of, uh, of our small town was killed.
0: And what town was it? Mount Pleasant, Mount Pleasant. Iowa. Uh,
1: killed in a, in a council meeting. At a council meeting, a young a person who was upset over a, f- a sewer problem came in with a loaded gun and, and shot the mayor and killed him and seriously wounded two council members. And the mayor's father, slain mayor's father, came into my law office, had watched me be involved in community activities, volunteering, and assumed that I had the capacity to help lead a community uh, through this difficult time. Honestly, my wife had told me there were three rules of success in Mount Pleasant. You either had, you had to be born in Iowa, you had to be a Methodist, and you had to be a Republican. I was born <laughs> in Pennsylvania. I was a Democrat and a Catholic. Um, so she wished me good luck. Um, but that, uh, that job as mayor got me involved in politics, and that led to a state senator and led to a, uh, uh, the governorship of Iowa for, for eight years. And I think it was that combination of, of my political background that people assumed I knew a lot about agriculture I learned a great deal while I was Secretary of Agriculture, and, and uh, I, I felt I feel today very, very strongly about the people who live, work, and raise their families mm-hmm. in rural areas.
0: And Kyle, you know a little bit about, about agriculture as well. So, some chefs do, some chefs don't, but you made it a, a passion of yours to focus on that. But um, start by telling us how you got to be a chef. I know everyone's talking about the salt line. Uh, I've read about it as uh, an oyster and alehouse that is kind of like New England meets Chesapeake Bay, but w- where did your path begin?
2: I was a I was a dishwasher in 1994 at a restaurant. uh, Uh, Obviously, a restaurant. Yeah, in a restaurant in in Pennsylvania, in Southeast Pennsylvania, and I loved the grind of it. I loved the. uh, You know, I I never wanted to sit at a desk. I never wanted to just hang out uh, in a in a school for your hands on. Yeah, moving around, sweating it out. I thought that was really cool.
0: And were you born in Pennsylvania? Yes. Okay.
2: Yeah. Uh, Eventually, went to culinary school when I was 18. Culinary Institute of America, and really learned uh, the ins and outs of. Uh, food and what what food is and what it's even about and back then it was a little bit different. It was more uh, It was more of a pirate ship mentality. It was that thing, but that's what I, that's what drew me to it You know, it's like when you say
0: pirate ship mentality. Yeah, pirate what, it was you like,
2: your chef was your captain and okay. batting down the hatches, you know It's like uh-huh. and, and trouble's coming. It was really I love that. I thought it was really cool fighting through a service all night long it was, I thought it was really cool moved all over uh, Miami the Bahamas got a great foot in New York at a restaurant called crew under chef Shea Galante um, amazing chef uh, went on to work at uh, Blue Hill at Stone Barns. Dan Barber. Yeah, Yep. Uh, Who you?
0: I'm sure you know Tom. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep.
2: amazing visionary chef Dan Barber, and uh, I uh, was lucky enough to, to land that job. Went on to become a chef at a restaurant called Allen and Delancey in the Lower East Side, one Michelin star. 2008, got a call from uh, Michael Babin. Uh, Would you want to come down to DC and open a uh, this restaurant? And uh, uh, you know, packed up the wife, uh, who was a pastry chef, she owns a buttercream bake shop, and we moved to Birch and Barley, and, and the rest
1: is history, I think. You know, I'll tell you, it, it, if you think about how hard it is to be a chef, I mean, you, the captain of that ship, I just think about trying to put a meal on at a house, just for, like, myself and my wife, and making sure that everything's cooked at the right time and cooked in the right temperature and is hot when it's served— I can't imagine doing it for hundreds and hundreds of people night after night after night. It's kind of
0: a miracle that it works, isn't it?
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, really, the craziest thing is, like, you're not the one cooking. You have, you have a, a, a staff of, you know, however many people you have. You have to direct them to cook. And like, it is difficult. It's a lot of fun, though.
0: And tell us about the, um, the the salt line in terms of when people go there. What are you trying to have them experience? What are you trying to have them leave with what type of feeling
2: sure we um we try to evoke this um a feeling of um of a new england uh kind of place but uh, through the mid-atlantic through the chesapeake with the with with um seafood that's as local as possible you know there's um amazing oyster selection great seafood we do have excellent meats as well i I had a a, a big meat background at virgin barley and before that and we were voted the number one ham you know best hamburger in dc for uh the year that we opened
0: and one of the things you're kind of known for, I think, is uh, what's called whole animal butchery, right? What's that, what's that mean, and wh- uh, how does it manifest itself in your restaurants?
2: Uh, so whole yeah, animal— do, do we want to hear? Do yeah, we yeah, really yeah, want to yeah. know? No, you do. It's, <laughs> okay. it's really cool. Okay. Uh, so whole animal is complete utilization of the product. Um, and it's not just animal. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's meat, it's fish, it's vegetables, it's, it's uh, everything, right? The idea that you don't leave anything left. You have to be a little uh, creative with what uh, you you end up getting out of the out of the, the the pig or the beef or the fish.
0: Is there something that would strike Tom and I as like the most unusual dish we'd been served?
2: Uh, you know, we, I mean, I'm not afraid of uh, beef shanks or okay. uh, pork shanks or like the, the the foot parts. You know, the footy parts. I don't, really? I don't mind that so much, and I don't think other people are. We right now we have a, bra- a braised beef neck uh, on the menu, and I I think necks awesome. That sounds we, manageable. We, this
1: is actually going to be important in the future because I think there's now a growing concern about food waste and the fact that we waste about a third of the food that's raised or produced in the country for a variety of reasons to the extent that we can figure out how to use the whole animal uh, and then have portion sizes that make sense for people so that there is not the waste and to the extent that we can redirect the waste if there is any into a compost or, or, or some kind of reusable form or recycled form. That's really gonna. It's gonna help climate. It's gonna help greenhouse gas emission reductions. It's uh, gonna make people feel better about the sustainability of the entire system. So really interesting. You
0: you you've both had some pretty cool jobs, and Kyle, you made even sounding like a uh, being a dishwasher sound like a lot of fun, and, and really exciting. Tom, I was gonna ask you. Uh, there is, there, there's no apples to apples comparison, but did you have a, a favorite of your different uh, roles in 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 public service? Uh, like I think about my friend. Martin O'Malley, who you knew was governor of Maryland, I think he liked being mayor of Baltimore more than he liked being governor. And how would you compare, you know, governor and secretary of agriculture, that type of thing?
1: Well, I, I was surprised that the the job as secretary of agriculture was such a great job. I mean, I, obviously, it was a great privilege and honor to be secretary of agriculture, but it, the it's an amazing department that does so many different things. And it actually is like being governor of 50 states. So People, uh, in a sense, I was sort of like a domestic uh, CEO. Just in terms of how governor. big it is, how yeah. much it covers? Well, it co- virtually everything a governor does, I did. Uh, it's it's human services because we did the nutrition programs. It's education because we're in the schools. Uh, it's uh, forestry, the forestry department, the US Forest Service is in our purview. And as a result, you do natural resources. There's trade, there's economic development, job creation with rural development food safety, I mean, there were just a variety of ways in which it paralleled the job of being governor. So I could be in any community, anywhere in the country legitimately, and I could also be all over the world legitimately uh, talking about agriculture and, and farming. And, and one of the things that I appreciated is, I think during the course of the time I was there, we began the conversation to bring people together uh, to focus on this incredibly important industry of, of, of food and agriculture. Most people don't realize this, but, uh, you know, Kyle's involved in in an industry, if you take food and agriculture writ large, that employs 43 million people. It's 28% of the American workforce. 43
0: million people involved in our food supply chain, in effect? Food
1: and agriculture. Wow. 28% of the workforce, 20% of our economy. So, you know, you can talk about cars and you can talk about steel and aluminum, all that, but the reality is food and agriculture directly impacts the economic uh, growth and potential of the country. And, you know, I think, I think the, the work of chefs is now reconnecting people with where their food comes from. Uh, and I think for far too long we had a disconnect between the people who produce it and the people who consume it. And this connection, I think, is going to benefit because people who consume it will learn a little bit about the risk that's involved in farming and how difficult that job is. You know, you can be the best chef in the world and people will flock to your restaurant. There will be lines waiting outside. You know, you, you, you could be incredibly successful. You can be the best farmer in the world, and if Mother Nature doesn't uh, cooperate, you can be out of business. So it, it's a hard job, and, and oftentimes I don't think we're, we're as appreciative of what these people do. Um, so I would say that the job that I enjoyed, I enjoyed all of them. Uh, I enjoyed the executive jobs more than I did uh, being a state senator uh, because you were in charge and you could actually get things done. Uh, but the, the job of being secretary of agriculture was just a, just a fabulous job.
0: And um, Kyle mentioned being captain of the ship. Uh, when you're secretary of agriculture, what's it like to be a cabinet secretary? Are you captain of the ship? Or are you waiting to hear something from the White House? Do you have to get permission? <laughs> How does that work? I think most people probably it, don't understand it.
1: It, it depends. Um, I used to say that I, I, I didn't think I would see God on earth, but OMB is about as close <laughs> to God on earth as I've ever been the Office <laughs> of Management <Budget> and Management <laughs> Budget. Uh, you know, there was President Obama had a lot of faith and confidence in uh, what we were doing at USDA, so he basically gave us pretty free reign. But at the end of the day, you always had to be responsive to, to the president. And obviously, that was never a problem because I, I just incredibly admire him for the vision he had for the country and for the way in which he managed the job of being president. Uh, you know, this is, is a tough job. It's an incredibly hard job. Uh, and and you know you not only have to deal with the people in the country, but you also have to deal with world leaders all over all over. And and you have to be the representative of the United States uh, all over the world. And I think the president imparted upon us the responsibility that we had to do our very level best for the people of America and to represent America our very best when we went overseas. Um, and he and he provided, I think, a very good example, a good model for that.
0: Cal um, Secretary was talking about. Uh, this notion of bringing people closer to their food, which is something that I think you've done through uh, an organization called uh, Dock to Dish, which I've seen described as uh, akin to community-supported agriculture CSAs. Uh, tell us how it works. Tell us what uh, why that's been a motivation for you.
2: It's it's a lot like a CSA. Uh, they call it um, an RSF, a restaurant-supported fishery. Okay. Uh, the idea was to cut <clears throat> a couple of um, steps out of the supply chain. Uh, number one to get the freshest and best fish. That's what chefs want the most. That's what that's what drives us, of course. Uh, not that we're not we don't care about the other stuff, but that's really I mean that's very important. Always chasing the best dish, you know what I mean. Always chasing that that best ingredient. It uh, gets money back into the pockets of the actual fishermen.
0: And are you talking about fishermen in this region? So yes. are we're talking about principally Chesapeake Bay fishermen, or is it yes. broader than that?
2: It's it's Chesapeake Bay.
0: Okay. And, and restaurants are organized to buy from these particular fishermen.
2: Yeah, the idea is that you pay in before so that it's guaranteed that they have the money to, to do what they love, to, to do what they need to do. Uh, you know, they go, they go fishing, they come back and they say, this is what we got, and get creative and let's use it.
0: And so what are some of the advantages of this in terms of how does it make it more sustainable, our fisheries?
2: So there is no throwaway, there's no real bycatch. Um, you know, bycatch is something that you would catch by accident with um, some premium type fish, uh, a premium catch. So then, uh, you know, bring it to a restaurant, bring it to a chef and say, Hey man, here's some sea robins. Here's some eels. What are we going to do with this?
0: And, so, and if we're a customer at your restaurant, we're eating food that's fresher, that was, came from closer to home, all of those kind of advantages.
2: For, to the for sure. It's, uh, we, the fish we get is lo- alive still when we get it.
1: You know, that's an important, uh, consideration. I think more and more consumers, whether it's at a restaurant or even when they go to a grocery store, are very interested in knowing where and how whatever it is they're consuming is, is, was produced or consumed. And, and one of the things I'm, I'm appreciative in working with the dairy industry now is they're really taking this issue of sustainability to a different level. Uh, there is a commitment on the part of the vast majority of dairy products produced in this country to animal welfare. Uh, they have a, a system which is the only internationally certified system in the world for animal welfare. That dairy producers have committed to. And I think that helps people when they go in the grocery store say, okay, this has been sustainably produced. I can buy it. I can feel good about it. Uh, it's consistent with my values, consistent with, with what I think is important. Um, and there's this is an industry also that has committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 20% by the year 2020. And they're on track to make that commitment. And then to go even further, I think that the, the goal I think eventually is to have uh, farms where, where basically we don't have emissions. We've basically figured out a way to sequester carbon and so forth. So there's a lot of creative stuff going on. And I think in part the, the food movement, the, the local and regional food movement is, is driving a lot of this and consumers are driving it. And I think it's a good thing for agriculture because it's, again, reconnecting people uh, with who and how their food is, is produced.
0: And Tom, uh, we're talking about the dairy industry now. You're the president and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. That's right. Is that correct?
1: It's uh, about 120-member companies representing processors and co-ops that essentially export dairy products around the world. And what I like about this is it's an opportunity for me to showcase uh, what we do well in this country. And and, uh, for a product that that I can make the case is nutritious. uh, We like to say it's, uh, you know, um, nature's more perfect food uh, because of the essential vitamins and minerals that you get when you consume dairy. Um, and we're and we're really committed to this issue of sustainability. And so I, I like to be on the cutting edge of things. And, and I think this is, for agriculture, it's being on the cutting edge of sustainability. And I think it's going to create greater confidence on the part of chefs and on the part of grocery retailers uh, that American agriculture is listening to what consumers want and need.
0: Tom, when you were Secretary of Agriculture, as uh, we were talking earlier about childhood hunger, which is the focus for Share Our Strength and Our No Kid Hungry campaign. Uh, during your tenure, uh, more than 3 million kids were added to the school breakfast program. The greatest increase I think since the beginning of the program, and a lot of that had to do with um, ways in which you helped and encouraged the department to facilitate this and I think the bully pulpit that you used, frankly, with governors around the country who have some role in, in executing this. When you're Going back to being secretary, when you have so many demands on you, you're responsible as you were talking about forestry and, you know, so many other issues. How did how did you personally prioritize? And um, you talked about we you know, we didn't get the job all the way done. What were you trying to accomplish and what do you think we have left to do?
1: Well, first of all, I appreciate the, the kind comments about uh, k- kids and, and school breakfast, but the reality is uh, you and Jeff Bridges and Share Our Strength had a lot to do with getting uh, those 3 million um, more meals and school districts that are receptive to the notion that kids need to be well-fed in order for them to learn. Look, I, I started out life in an orphanage uh, and uh, was raised in a family that loved me but was a bit troubled. I, I understand and appreciate how hard it is to go to school if, you're, if, if things at home aren't, aren't what they need to be. Um, and when you have that experience growing up, it tailors how you think and what you think is important. And I wanted to make sure that in this ever-changing world, the single most important thing we can do for children is to make sure they're educated and well-educated and well-prepared for a changing world. They can't do that if they're hungry. Uh, so one of the, the responsibilities of the Department of Agriculture is to make sure that people who are least able to afford the basic necessities of life are are provided help and assistance. And we took great pride in expanding access to to, to programs. Uh, we took great pride in improving the quality of food that kids were getting uh, at school. We took great pride in knowing those kids were, those millions of kids that we were impacting and affecting in a positive way were gonna learn a little bit better and be better prepared. You know, I, I, I think as a goal, at the end of the day, we started with a very aggressive goal, which is to try to eliminate childhood hunger. We made significant strides, but you know there are so many factors involved. I don't think any of us anticipated that we would be dealing with the worst recession since the Great Depression, which really drove up the number of food insecure families. Yep. And w- you can see when the economy improves, even with the economy improving as it has over the last 10 years, you still see millions and millions of Americans who just simply do not make enough to make ends meet without support and help. And they're working hard. Uh, many of them are working two jobs or part jo- part-time jobs. They're working at a minimum wage. So, knowing that you can provide help and assistance, understand that you're providing direct help to that family, providing incentives for those folks to buy the, the the things that are most nutritious for their for their kids. You're not only helping them, you're also helping the country as a whole because it it creates a, a you know, stability in the country. You know, if you look at the hot spots in the world today, where there's a lot of terror and a lot of anger and uh, upheaval, what you're going to find is you're going to find a, a, an agricultural economy that's not functioning, so they don't really have farms that are particularly prosperous. They aren't making enough or producing enough to feed their own people, so you got a lot of hungry people. Because you don't have a sophisticated agricultural economy, you don't have a layered economy creating jobs, so you have a lot of unemployed people. So if you got a lot of hungry, unemployed people, you got a lot of angry people. And the ability of the Department of Agriculture to make sure that people were well-fed, the ability of the department to help create jobs in rural places g- gave you a sense of satisfaction that you were doing something that really mattered. And unfortunately, that department within the D.C. is not well understood uh, within the powers of, uh, of the halls of Congress and oftentimes in, even in, in subsequent administration. There's just not an understanding and appreciation for exactly what these folks do. And I think what we tried to do in the eight years was to elevate the awareness and use that department to the extent that we could to help as many people as we could.
0: One of the reasons that we love having conversations like these, and I think Tom and I would probably be uh, having worked in government as well, um, but not nearly anywhere near Tom's level, is I think we'd be the first to say that there's a lot government can do, but there's some things government can't do and that only the private sector can do. And so these kind of you know triangles of private sector, public sector, nonprofit sector, turn out to be very important. And I'm wondering, Kyle, when you think about what you're trying to accomplish, there's, there's kind of two sides of the coin that I'm interested in. One is, do your customers know and do you need them to know, or do you care if they know that you're, a, you're, you're in effect a socially responsible business? You're making a difference in the community. And some people probably just come in because they've heard this is the best oyster that I could get anywhere. Um, but are you, are, are you also trying to educate them, and, and is that important to you?
2: Well, let me say uh, first that I'm fully on board with everything you just said. You're you're totally right. I think you totally nailed it. So um, what we're seeing now, for sure, is a uh, a much more savvy diner. People are uh, much smarter about food, and they care about food much, much more. You you see Whole Foods. You see all these um, uh, organic grocery stores popping up. You know, we're not trying to hit people over the head with what we're doing, but, you know, the information is available. We're a part of the the Surfrider Foundation, the uh, Monterey Bay uh, Aquarium Program, the James Beard Smart Smart Catch Program.
0: Those are all tied in with what you're doing. Yes. Okay.
2: Yes, and that's uh, preservation of the oceans, and that's um, you know local sustainable uh, seafood, and and people do care. People do want to, to know this stuff.
1: You, you know, there, there's also an important uh, an important role that that uh, restaurants like uh, the one that Kyle's involved in do for the rural places. There is this division and divide, and has been for a while between big and small. Producers and there's, I think, a belief that the small producer or the small fisher uh, fisherman uh, business doesn't have the ability to compete fairly and effectively, and and there is some truth to that because markets basically reward size and efficiency and technology and so forth. W- what these restaurants that are focused on sustainable practices, local and regionally produced products, what they are doing is they're creating an alternative market opportunity for the small individual, independent producer so that they have a chance to dictate their price, to be able to negotiate, if you will, a price that allows them to stay in business. So to a certain extent, these folks are not only uh, providing you fresh, sustainably produced, wonderfully cooked food, they're also providing a a degree of stability and connection that is keeping the fabric of rural places Hmm. alive and allowing there to, to be diversity within agriculture and aquaculture, that it's not just one size fits all, it's not just one way of producing things. It's diversity and diversity of size, diversity of method, diversity of of approach. And I think that's just really important to continue to to be supportive of because again, rural America is an incredibly important place. And a lot of people don't realize this, but a substantial percentage of our military comes from these small towns. And if they can't economically survive and and kids and grandkids keep moving away from these small towns eventually, you're gonna have a hard time filling the, that, that military. I mean, they're, they're protecting us. It might be 15% of America's population, but it could be 30% of America's military. So it's just, a, it's just a, I think, think people really understand and appreciate the connection between the sustainable food movement, small-sized operations, and the fabric of rural places.
0: I mean, as somebody who's talked about these rural issues for a long time, are you optimistic that the coasts will, you know, the East Coast and the West Coast will ever understand rural or vice versa? Well, you know, that, that seems to, certainly with the election of Trump, there was a lot of conversation about this big divide. How do we get across it?
1: Well, I think politicians of both parties have to do a better job of, of speaking to and about rural places. I mean, I, I, I will tell you, I'm, I'm more critical of the Democratic Party in this respect than I am. Republicans, at least Republicans, talk to folks in small towns. They may have a message of less government, less regulation, which is attractive in the, in the, alter, in the absence of a competing narrative. Uh, but Democrats need to show up. They need to understand how to talk to and about these folks to be appreciative of what they do, not to talk down to them. And then there needs to be, whether it's Republican or Democratic administrations or, or which parties involved in Congress, there needs to be a specific, in my view, a specific program, specific effort designed to re- revitalize a rural economy. And I think you can do that in a very bio-based, very sustainable way. We've had an extraction economy in those rural places for far too long. We take stuff off the ground and take stuff out of the ground and we ship it someplace else and we create opportunities someplace else. There's a way to take that stuff off the ground and create sustainable business practices that allow the, the, the opportunities to stay closer to where the things are, are, are produced. And when that happens, you're going to see less stress on urban centers. You're going to see uh, a greater uh, connection between those of us who live in small towns and those of us who live in big cities. Right now, there is this divide, and there's divide for a multitude of reasons. But one of them is basically the people in rural places feel like they've been left out and left behind. And as long as they feel that way, there's going to continue to be this red-blue division within the country, and we're going to continue to have the gridlock that that's created. And so it seems to me incumbent upon both parties to be more serious about these rural areas and to provide uh, more hope than they have.
0: That resonate with you, Kyle?
1: Absolutely. We should we should definitely hang out more. <laughs> uh, I'm
2: with you, for sure.
0: I also wanted to ask you about, I, I, I was saying before that there were kind of two sides of the coin that I was interested in. One is how your consumers understand what you do, but also uh, do you end up evangelizing with other chefs? Uh, most chefs I know are not that Political, but at the same time, they're impacted by the kind of political issues that Secretary Vilsack's talking about. Do you work to get other chefs involved in sustainability causes as well?
2: Uh, I think intrinsically, chefs are, um, you know, always looking at this thing. You know, the the local uh, food movement has been going strong for, you know, since um, '70s right. uh, for sure. Uh, just gaining steam, gaining steam, and now it's you know, it's 2019, and this is this is supposed to be the standard. And chefs love that. Chefs, chefs are about that. So it's not hard to engage people. You know, we try to bring people into the program as much as we can. It's We're sometimes limited. It's I know, as you know, it's it's very hard to get things like this off, off the ground.
0: And we're at a time where people are so food obsessed, right? It's just like it's become, chefs have become celebrities in our culture. And so there's an opportunity there on a platform, I think. And, you know, we've seen that, Tom, at a lot of the events we've done with Share Our Strength where chefs are, you know, kind of at the center of it.
1: Well, you know, this, Kyle's story is an interesting one. It starts out as a dishwasher. Now, you know, uh, uh, that's a fairly base-level job. I, I did that going through college, so I kind of understand what that means. In fact, I'm still doing it in my home. Uh, but uh, it, it, there's also the role that chefs and restaurants are playing in the immigration debate. Because a lot of the workforce that is responsible for cleaning the tables and doing the dishes uh, aren't people growing up in privileged uh, homes. They, they're coming to this country with the hope and a dream and aspiration of working hard, playing by the rules, and eventually they or, them, or their children and grandchildren will have a better life. So I think it's – again, I don't I, – I, the connections that – when you go into a restaurant, you just think, well, I'm going in there get and get a good meal – there's so much more to it than that, and that uh, whether it's the economic impact of food and agriculture, whether it's the sustainable opportunities for rural communities, or whether it's uh, making sure that we at some point in time in the near future get a, a sensible immigration policy that allows us to, to continue to embrace diversity in this country and, and, and be supported by it and benefit from it. This all kind of intersects at Kyle's Restaurant in addition to getting Pretty good seafood. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: well, since you raised immigration, I, I've got to ask you what what is the right way to? I think it's such a red hot issue right now. We're uh, recording this uh, the day after the president's State of the Union. Uh, I'd be curious your reaction to that, since immigration was a, a centerpiece of it. But mostly, what do you think? Uh, how do we get this country on a path to solving this problem?
1: Well, I think we have to uh, we have to empower our politicians to make the courageous decision. I, look. If you could take every member of Congress, and for that matter, everybody who works in the White House, and you could put them into a truth chamber and you, and you could have a little conversation with them that was off the record, everybody you would talk to would explain to you what the solution is. It's not rocket science. We have to have more border security. That's a given. We've got to do it. And there are ways to do it. There, there are multitude of ways to do it that need to be done. Maybe more personnel, maybe technology. At some point, it may be a barrier here or there. But at the same time, it is unreasonable to assume that we're going to disinvite 12 million people that have been working hard and playing, pretty much playing by the rules, even though they didn't get here by the rules, that we're going to kick them out of the country, that we're not going to create some pathway or some vehicle, some method by which they can get out of the shadows and be uh, fully contributing members of this country. And so we, we both on the right and the left, I don't think have empowered our, our leaders to be able to cut that deal. I think we've empowered our leaders just to go into the corners and not come out. And the rest of us suffer from that because at the end of the day, we're going to need workforce. I can tell you that agriculture is reliant on on immigrant workforce. I mean, the dairy industry, it's not, you know, when it was 39 below zero in my home state on those dairy farms, there was somebody out there taking care of those cows. And a lot of people taking care of those cows didn't necessarily get here. The right way.
0: Well, that's it's often true of the restaurant industry too. I don't know anything about okay. cows restaurants, but yeah, I mean we see that across the industry, right? right? That's a big yeah, issue,
1: industry wide. But, but but the re, I mean that's the story. Immigrant populations historically have done the jobs that are really hard, really difficult. The jobs that not a lot of us who are who are born here will necessarily gravitate towards. They do those jobs. They work hard. They save. They tell their kids, you don't don't do this when you grow up. Go to school. Be you know be educated. Be a business leader. Be a whatever. And that's what happens. That's, the, that's what's great about America, right? But when you essentially say we're going to stop that or we're going to make it more difficult for that to happen because we're fearful, we're afraid, or we think wrongly that these people are taking jobs from the rest of us, the, the whole American, in my view, the whole American experience gets interrupted. And, and what's been great about this country is our ability to accept diversity, to allow people to assimilate into this country. Let me give you an example. During the recession, there was uh, uh, the belief that immigrant labor was basically taking jobs, which were people were desperately looking for, in, particularly in the agricultural space. So the United Farm Workers uh, in California decided to put an ad in the paper for the uh, produce industry, suggesting that there was a need for workers. Um, I'm told by the folks at, uh, at, at the Farm Workers Union that About 20,000 people responded initially to the website that said, hey, job available, pays $10 an hour. If you're interested, let us know. 20,000 people. Then once they got to 20,000 people, they got back to them and said, now, we just need to explain to you what this job is. It's eight to 10 hours a day, 90 degree heat, bending over, harvesting lettuce. Not an easy job. It went from 20,000 to 20, 20. OK, 20, great, twenty. it's 20 more than we had. Here's where you report on such and such a day at such and such a time. Two people showed up. Of the two people who showed up, only one worked the full day. So these are jobs that a lot of Americans, for a multitude of reasons, aren't interested in working. The same thing would be true if you went to a lot of the meatpacking and processing facilities in this country. This is really hard work. It's really hard work. And if you look at the workforce of many of those meatpacking facilities, it's immigrant labor. Now, people say, well, you know, if they just paid them more. In the heart of the recession in California, where the unemployment rate was over 10%, and you were being offered a job at $10 an hour, and there were hundreds of thousands of people unemployed, not earning anything, twenty people expressed ultimate interest in that job, and only two people showed up, and only one did the full days of work. So, you know, that, that, I think that tells you something about the nature of jobs. And again, if you had a if you had a working immigration system with proper border security and a working immigration system, you would be able to regulate the flow of those folks so that you you wouldn't be interfering with the capacity but you would also be creating the opportunity for people to get a foothold in this country as every single one of our ancestors did. I mean, hardly anybody with the exception of African Americans, obviously, which is completely different, but you know, the Irish and the German, I mean, they came over here and they did the jobs that nobody wanted and they, you know, they were ridiculed and they were isolated for many, many, but, but eventually over time they became an integral part of the country and, 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 a, and a fabric in the history of the country. So I, I just it's just amazing to me that, that there are politicians out there that want to scare people into thinking, well, geez, you don't want to have amnesty. My God, you don't want to create a pathway for legitimacy for these people. OK, fine. Then the, the, fine them. OK. You know, if I'm speeding down the street or if I violate a, a lot of laws today, the way I'm held accountable is I pay a financial penalty. Okay, I got no problem with that, pay a financial penalty. But don't prevent these people from coming out of the shadows. Don't create a circumstance and situation where there's in, in, an, in a very important aspect of the economy where you have an unreliable workforce, where you have people, when they hear about ICE being in the neighborhood, they head for the hills. I mean, you, you just can't have that. I mean, you, and it's all because I'm afraid if I'm a Democrat, if I vote for border security, I'm going to get primaried because I'm in a district that is predominantly Democrat or I'm a Republican. And good Lord, I can't possibly be for that pathway to citizenship because somebody's going to claim that I've provided amnesty and I'm taking jobs away from hardworking people in my district. That's just at some point time, somebody has to the political courage and say, no, that's not right. That's not true. You know, it's not true. And and at some point in time, the folks in the middle of this country have to say, you know what? We're not going to play. We're we're not going to fall for that game. We're not playing that game. We're playing the game of getting problems solved in this country, and we're going to reward that kind of behavior, not rewarding the, my way or the highway behavior.
0: And it goes it goes back to what you said earlier about uh, for those who are in the corners and the extremes. If they were talking privately off the record, they know.
1: Everybody this is in this, not
0: tenable the way we're doing it now. Yeah,
1: everybody in this town knows what the solution is. Everybody knows what it is. I mean, it's not, and they've known it for years. It's not like it's something new. I mean, they've known it for years, but nobody's got the courage to be able to say, you know what, at the end of the day, this is the way it's going to be. Yeah. And the State of the Union Address certainly didn't help things because there was no real indication on this issue that's been divisive. The, the the folks in this conference committee you know they need to be empowered by the leadership to cut it those people in that conference committee working on that on that this budget bill that has to be done before we face another shutdown they know what the solution is they just haven't received permission to implement it and i guarantee you that if if they sent a bill to the president that had a solution in it i he can claim that he's going to veto it, but he's not going to veto it. And if he did, they put there very well could be an override. So that that's what has to happen. And if it in this 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 effort to try to fashion a deal so I win and you lose, or I look good and you, it, it, you know, most people that's not the way we that's not the way most people operate. No. And 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 the the longer this goes on, the more upset people get. So hopefully and 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 the response now is that people are looking at their at what they can do locally okay okay if i can't if I, if my if my federal congress can't solve this problem then at my war, my level where i have some influence where i have some ability to impact it i'm going to do something right so to the extent that we've said to the right and left in your corners no compromise don't figure this out it's going to hurt all of us
0: and, and so I always get stuck exactly where you left that, which is to say, how do we get people out of those corners? And is, is it a different uh, uh, voice, uh, you know, obviously a less divisive voice probably than the president's, but even, even President Obama, right, had tr- challenges with this issue.
1: Well, well and, and he did because uh, some folks in Congress wanted him to be a one-term president. So, I mean, that, that, that's not the right attitude, and we shouldn't reward that kind of attitude, Right. What we should, in my view, we should reward people that are problem solvers, not problem makers. And I think what we've attempted to do with, and there's a lot of issues with our politics today, from how congressional districts are drawn to how much money is in politics, which allows us to have this, this, this incredible gridlock. We, we at some point in time have to say those of us who are sort of in the middle of all this have to say enough, you know, enough. We want people that are going to go into that Congress, into that White House, work with folks on both sides and get things done. Get things done. OK, if it requires a little compromise, you know what? We're not we're not going to penalize you for compromise and we're not going to we're not going to primary you for compromise. We're, we're going to say it well done and we're going to move the ball down the field. We're, we're in a competition right now. We meaning the United States in a competition for which system of government works best in a time of change. You know, we always thought that once we won the Cold War, things were over and our democracy was the best way to do it. And everyone was going to see that. Well, you get these China folks in China now who are saying, you know what, in a world of constant change, maybe the authoritative way of getting things done is a better way, a more efficient way. Because, you know what, if we need to make a decision, we make it. It gets done. If we need to make an investment, it gets done. We've been talking about infrastructure investment in this country for years. What's what's stopping us? Well, it's gridlock. So the Chinese are now saying in many countries around the world, you got a choice between this democracy that's a little messy and it's slow and it's you it know, doesn't make a decision or our system, which is uh, pretty efficient. And I think we're in a competition. So I think to the rest of the world, we have to show that democracy works and works pretty well. And yeah, it's a little messy, but it, eventually it gets the job done in a way that doesn't Limit people's freedoms and abilities, but right now, the the message of the rest of the world with shutdowns and, and you know fights over this and that is maybe maybe it doesn't work very well in the 21st century, and I think that's a very dangerous position for our country, to put to, for our leaders to put us in. I would agree with that for sure,
0: and and it feels like part of I guess what's implicit in some of what you were saying is the need to just restore basic civility. I mean, you have a reputation um, almost unique, Tom, as being somebody in politics who was just always a civil person, a gentleman uh, motivated by trying to do the right thing, putting the interests, the larger interests of kind of the community ahead of your own personal interests. How do, how do we restore that type of civility so that all of us feel that somebody sitting at a, at a restaurant would feel like, ah, there's a there's a change in tone here, a change in climate.
1: I think we encourage those people running for office uh, that, that we're going to we're gonna acknowledge and we're, we're not necessarily going to penalize you for being that way. And I think, unfortunately, in the politics of today, uh, there's the, the message is being sent that if you're that way, uh, you, you know, you're going to get primaried or you're going to get this or that. I think we basically have to say this is, you know, frankly— we need people who are problem solvers. And that's what that's what we're going to vote for. We're going to vote for people who are problem solvers, not problem makers. And we've had too much of that for far too long.
0: Well, I've got one more question for you, Tom, and then one tough question for, for both of you. My question for you, Tom, goes back to the work that we're doing at, uh, at Share Strength and with the No Kid Hungry campaign. I talked about the progress we've made on childhood hunger. We didn't get all the way to the finish line, but we've come a long, long way. And frankly, the 100 straight months of job growth, which started, as you know, under the Obama presidency, which doesn't get mentioned much anymore, uh, has had a big impact on that as well. And uh, I'll tell you what I'm finding, and, tell, and please push back on it if, if you think I'm out to lunch here, but one of the things that we're starting to see is that uh, there's still a significant amount of poverty, including child poverty in the United States. There's a significant amount of food insecurity in the socioeconomic sense of families struggling to put food on the table. But thank goodness, uh, there's less childhood hunger in terms of you know just the basic common sense definition of our kids getting three meals a day? One of the things that Census Bureau and USDA data uh, is, is showing now is that um, not that many families are presenting as no, our kids are. Unfortunately, our kids are skipping meal. That's not happening as much. And so one of the questions I think that's incumbent on us, and again, feel, feel free to, to, to challenge the premise of it, but at least to share our strength, we're starting to think about how do we not just feed kids? How do we prevent families from being in the situation where their kids are hungry in the first place? I always say that, you know, nobody's against feeding a hungry child, but not everybody is in favor of doing the things you need to do to support the family. That's where the politics start to break down. How should we think about that?
1: Well, I I, I think it's, you're absolutely right. I think it it has to be, we are treating a symptom and we're not treating the holistic, uh, challenger that the family has. And I think we have to, as as nonprofits, as government, uh, and as the private sector, needs to come together and, and really focus on the holistic, on the family welfare, on the family well-being. Because if you have a stable family, if you have a decent job, and you're able to make ends meet, boy, there's going to be a whole lot of uh, of benefits to so the society. the best thing we could do for most it's, kids. It's the best thing we could do for the country because it, it will ensure that, our kids are well-educated. It will ensure that we have a more productive economy. It will ensure that we have a strong military. It, it will ensure that we send the right message to the rest of the world about a, a democratic government. All of those are positive impacts that will come from taking care of the family unit and it, however you define that. And obviously in today's world, that definition has changed a little bit from what it was when we were kids, but, it, but the fundamentals aren't changing. Parents care about their kids and we, we ought to be there to assist them, not to not to take over their job, not to hold them not accountable or responsible. They have they have to have skin in the game, but if they're willing to work hard and play by the rules, as they work up the economic ladder, we ought to be there to make sure that at the end of the day, if they've worked hard and played by the rules, that they get the kind of support that allows their kids to feel that they live in a loving, stable, and secure family. And I will tell you that it will pay for itself if uh, we do that.
0: Uh, and completely agree with you. Do you agree that the politics of that are more challenging than just saying help me feed a hungry child? Absolutely. That, that's the tricky part.
1: Absolutely. And and that that gets back to the earlier conversation about the give and take of politics is that you know there are some ideas on the right and some ideas on the left that are really great ideas and uh, again if we could figure out how people could give and take a little bit, we would probably be able to take the best from both, put them together and 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 make make progress. If we don't do that, and we have gridlock then we have struggling families, and we have all the ramifications of that—from education dropouts, obesity, crime, all, all, all of that. Less productivity, a, a, a less strong uh, America.
0: So, Kyle, we've got a lot of folks who listen that consider themselves foodies, and one of the tough questions we always ask—I'm going to ask you too, Tom—is uh, if you had to, if if you think there's a a place in this area in this region that's kind of a hidden gem it can't be one of your own restaurants but there's a place you think folks ought to know about um maybe it's not been reviewed or maybe it has or just kind of a you know a secret gem in terms of the food scene uh or your go-to place place that you just like to go when you get a chance to get away from it all what should we know about
2: uh that's so hard there's so many restaurants <laughs> i know man. i told you it's the
0: hardest question <clears throat> of the day
2: uh you know man i always find myself at Mandu. On uh, on K Street, Mondu? Yeah. Okay. I don't even know Mondu. Mandu. That's good to know. It's um. It is Korean food. Okay. Uh, the the chef is my good friend Danny Lee and his mom, uh, Okay. Yes, Lee. It's just always it, it's a big bowl of delicious hot food. You know.
0: So if we don't find you at the Salt Line, we find you at Mandu.
1: I'll be at the bar. Yeah. All so. right.
0: <laughs> and you mentioned washing dishes at home, so you you might not be getting out enough, Tom. But no. where where would you send us?
1: Uh, I'd send you to my house. <laughs> my, my wife Christy's a heck of a cook.
0: Okay, we're invited.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Awesome.
0: Okay. Thank you both so much. How do we learn more, Kyle, about Dr. Dish? Is it just drdish.org? Is, is there a website?
2: That's right. Uh, on the internet, go check us out. Um, there's a link to it on the Saltline re- uh, website as well. Just click the link.
0: Thanks. Well, thanks for being here, and thanks for what you're doing in the community, Kyle. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Tom Bilsack, such an honor. Again, thank mm-hmm. you for all the work that you've done and um, all the stuff we're going to do together in the future.
1: Right, sounds good, Billy.
0: I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. I hope you'll enjoy this podcast and go to our website and look for others. You can rate them. You can rank them. You can su- subscribe and let your friends know about them. And uh, thanks for the team here that produces this podcast, Paul Whittle uh, from District Productive and the team at Chair Strength, my sister Debbie Shore, who's usually in this studio with me, Kelly Griffin, and the whole team with the No Kid Hungry Campaign. Again, I'm Billy Shore. Thanks. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add passion and stirs the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall.